This is The Professional, a new podcast brought to you by ProfMed. Understanding that the professional of tomorrow is ever-changing. We introducing the new thinkers, doers, innovators, and trailblazers who paint the future of what it will mean to be a professional. It's late 2018, an international model and diversity advocate, Tanda Hopper, is in Durban with a friend. She's just become the first black South African to be featured in the prestigious Pirelli calendar. She's about to become the first ever person with albinism on the cover of Vogue magazine. She's used to people recognizing her on the street. So it's late afternoon and Tando and her friend are walking at the beach in Durban. They're chatting, relaxing, enjoying the sunny weather. And suddenly, this man on a bicycle rides up to them and starts circling around them. But this guy, he's not a fan. He's not seen Tando Hopa, the international model, the lawyer, the activist. All he is seeing is the color of her skin. And as he circles closer and closer on his bicycle, he starts talking to Tando in this threatening way. He said, yes, sis. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he says, And I was like, okay. And he's saying to you what? You're walking freely. You're walking. Sorry, if... I didn't even translate. <laughs> That's fine. You're, you're walking walk, freely. You're walking freely. Don't you know that Uzalo people are going to basically kidnap you? Um... And, and, my, and my friend said to me, what is he talking about? What this man was referring to, the reason he targeted her in the first place, was a TV show that had tried to do a good thing. A few weeks before this encounter, one of South Africa's most watched soapies, Uzalo, had aired an episode about people with albinism. It wanted to tackle the issue of stigma. The episode sees a father and a daughter being targeted for their body parts. It ends with a mooty killing. The hope was that through the show, people would learn that there's zero truth behind the myths and superstitions that surround albinism. But instead, this episode, it only made things worse. I heard rumors about the episode, but I didn't really know what the episode was about. Then I understood then that, okay, the episode must have dealt with ABCD. And it was a very interesting thing in that media at this point in time was trying to educate. But it also, you're constantly dealing with the catch-22 because as much as what Uzalo was trying to do was educate, it also had a very interesting consequence in that now I am being put in a position where people say, oh, do you know we can kidnap you? (laughs) And that kind of prejudice, those threats, they're exactly what Tando is trying to fight against. And she's using the runway to do it. I'm Bongani Bingwa, and this is The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how the world of work is changing in new and unexpected ways. In this episode, we're exploring what it takes to influence perceptions in a society where prejudice can be deadly. 
we look at why the words we use to talk about important topics are every bit as important as what we talk about. And we find out how a South African model and lawyer is trying to help restore dignity and humanity to people who are persecuted or killed just because of the way they look. These days, influencer is a dirty word. You hear it and you can't help but think of some preening, overhyped social media star posting selfies on their Insta account that have been filtered to the point of abstraction. Glamorous, exotic, exciting, and completely unrealistic. But there's a huge power in being able to influence people, to influence the way they see the world or the way they see themselves. That power, that influence, is something that Tandohopper has in spades. It radiates from her every time she's on the runway or the cover of a flashy fashion magazine. And it's something she's using to challenge accepted stereotypes of beauty, belonging and albinism. I almost had a reverse relationship with beauty. I, I found myself in this industry by asserting my enoughness. I know that kind of sounds really strange because modeling is the place where you'd expect your self-esteem to be hit. But I started saying, you know what? If I want to represent albinism in a positive way, I'm not going to be afraid to show it. And I had to have that dialogue with myself to say, your eyebrows are pale. Your eyelashes are pale. Your hair is kinky, yellow blonde. And that is how you look. And there's nothing wrong with that. Tando didn't start out life aiming to become an icon of a global beauty revolution. She didn't think she'd become a vital voice in the debate around identity, diversity and inclusion. And she certainly didn't expect to become the first black South African woman to feature in the Pirelli calendar or the first ever woman with albinism to grace the cover of Vogue magazine. In fact, the first few years of her life, Tando says she felt just like any other kid. So I grew up in Lanesia South, um, and it was quite a, it's a pigmented society. So I grew up with a mixture of Indian colored and black people. And when I was about four years old, prior to that, I think the most... Mm, the most present social stratification was gender because I think I understood that I was a girl. But I didn't understand that I was black and I didn't understand that I had albinism at that age. <laughs> but on her very first day of school, something happened, something that changed the way she saw herself and made her feel different for the very first time. I was a child who you know, may have been lighter than all everybody else, including my parents, but I didn't have albinism, not in my mind. I was just a person, you know, and I went to school and suddenly I started having these names that are attached to me. When I, I remember the first day of school and I went there, I actually was wearing a, a polka dot dress and everybody else was wearing school uniform. So my mother put me in a blue polka dot dress and I've actually never asked her, why did you not buy me the school uniform for the first day? But she said to me, I'm going to buy you your school uniform um, in a couple of days and, you know, you're going to go this way with the polka dot dress. And I'm going and I'm so excited, you know, I couldn't even sleep. I really just, this whole school thing, because my sisters are going to school, so now I'm going to do this grown-up thing and go to school. And when I get there, 
the children I was sitting next to move away from me. And I just hear this girl say, don't sit next to her, you know? And then they moved away and I thought to myself, oh my God, something is wrong. And I figured it out. It must have been the dress, you know? (laughs) So I went to my mother demanding school uniform because I figured that the reason why I was being treated differently was because of the polka dot dress. And I started realizing later that it was not the dress. (laughs) So I think that was my first real experience of understanding that I was different from other children. And those names that Tando talks about being thrown at her in school, words like Inkao, Albina, those names started to influence the way she saw herself. That's the tricky thing about the labels we give ourselves and each other. They have this power over us. They begin to define us in ways we don't always understand. This issue of how we deal with difference, the conversation about diversity and inclusion and prejudice, it's really been gaining momentum over the last few years. It's happening around the world in politics, at work, in our homes and in our schoolrooms. And the beauty industry has become a key battleground when it comes to changing notions of what is normal. But back when Tando was growing up in the early 90s, as South Africa took its first halting steps towards democracy, she didn't see anyone who looked like her on the pages of glossy fashion magazines or in movie theaters or on TV. She saw what we all saw, women who looked a certain way, a highly constructed image, a standardization of the female body that tells anyone who looks different, they can never be beautiful. Even though Tanda grew up surrounded by a hugely supportive family, even though she spent her formative years without feeling any different from other people, inevitably, the message she got from society was that she was not normal. I used to, I used to look the way I look now, back in high school. Until one day in matric, I decided I'm going to dye my eyebrows, I'm going to dye my eyelashes, because I had had enough of it. I had had enough of looking so different from everybody in my community. And when I did the whole um, dyeing my eyebrows and dyeing my eyelashes, sort of brown, blackish brownish, and I remember the first person, I went to a braai, and the first person I met, they said, oh my God, my sister, you look so beautiful, you know? And I was like, this is the winning formula I was looking for, you know? Now I don't have to, I can be pretty, and I don't have to, you know, look so strange because I felt like I looked so strange and so weird around yeah, in, in comparison to everybody else and my mother like I came I left home looking one way and then I came home looking completely different and she was upset and why I was she upset because she felt like she had done everything she could to make me feel like I was enough and she didn't understand why I didn't feel like I was enough both my parents, you know, I mean, I remember when I was 12, I went to my father and I said to him, you know, I don't want to look this way anymore. I'm tired of looking this way. Um, and he said to me, he's like, you know what, Mamgwev, which is my clan name. He said, I've never seen such a beautiful girl in my life. You're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. And the thing is, you never kind of believe your parents because you're like, they're my parents. But I do think that my parents, even though I had kind of my little detours in terms of self-esteem, 
they really brought in a resilience that kicked in when I had to go into this industry. Tando's entry into the world of beauty and fashion and eventually into diversity advocacy happened completely by chance. She actually wanted to be an actress back when she was a little girl, but her parents convinced her to study law and her becoming a lawyer was a big thing for the family. As a black woman, um, we have to understand that engineers and lawyers, etc., were not sort of commonplace in our families. My father was an engineer, and in, in, in the Hopper family, he was the only, and when I say family, I don't mean immediate family, I'm, I'm including extended family. He was the only engineer we knew. And when I, was, when I went into law in my family, I was the only lawyer I knew. So I couldn't go to my aunt's cousin or my aunt or whoever to say, hey, what is this thing, you know? Um, and we kind of, because of that, we kind of really um, decided our careers based on security. Um, and I think that kind of changed when I became a prosecutor because the reason why I became a lawyer is not the reason why I became a prosecutor. What's the difference? When I became a lawyer, as I said, it was just, you're 17, dad says this, and you just go and you're like, okay, fine, I'm going to do this thing. But then I, I actually found a course called street law. And street law would make us go into communities and teach people about the law. And I remember that there was this time when we went to prisons and we were teaching people about criminal law, etc. And they were young, like these guys were really quite young. And they were these in, were inmates? Inmates, yes. And they were in maximum um, sentence prisons. And I started asking myself questions about power dynamics. Um, and also, you know, um, the, the, the friends that I had, the understanding of rape, consent, it really started kind of creating a particular lawyer um, before I even chose prosecution. So I think I kind of went into prosecution really because these experiences nurtured an activist. So fast forward to 2012. Tando is just starting out as a prosecutor. She's 23 years old and she wants to help change what she sees as an unjust system from within. But one day, she has this completely unexpected encounter at a crowded mall in Joburg. She's approached by a fashion designer, a guy called Gert Johan Kutzia, with an offer that stops her in her tracks. I was at Cresta Mall and I was trying to watch a movie, actually. And he stopped me and he said, hi, would you please um, do a shoot for me? And I thought that that was the craziest thing I've ever heard because I was like, I have just started at the National Prosecuting Authority. Excuse me, I'm a lawyer, you know. I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this modeling thing. And then I went to my sister and my sister said to me, you know, this would be such a wonderful platform for you to change the narrative about albinism, but in no way did we think that it would take the direction it did. In no way, you know. We thought it was going to be a brief thing that we do and, you know, it would get whatever exposure it did. And then I was kind of going to just go back to, to your normal life. My, exactly, you know. But, I, and I sat down with Khat and I said to him, look, I want to represent albinism in a positive way. And I had no idea how complex what I was saying was. 
And he said, oh, he's like, okay, no, let's do this thing. And, you know, close my show. And I was like, close your show. I mean, I can't even walk in heels at this point. When I ran in court, I ran in flats. <laughs> I could never walk in heels. And now he was asking me to walk in heels and close his show. Because that's, of course, the showstopper. That's exactly. the moment like, in all any of a fashion. I became the showstopper. And I didn't. And I was just thinking to myself, what on earth am I doing? Why am I taking myself through the stress? But interestingly, that journey started something quite remarkable, but also a very difficult, very heavy emotional journey. A few years after that chance meeting at Cresta Mall, Tando ended up leaving the NPA. She says it wasn't because of the modeling. She just needed to pause, to take stock. And this is not necessarily through a religious thread, but it was a spiritual experience in that I felt like I was done. I couldn't explain it. I just felt like my time here is done. And I had just been promoted. I was um, now in the sexual offenses court. And after some time, I was like, something was saying, your space here is finished. So, and I didn't quit prosecution. I just finished, you know. And I, I, I said, nobody understood it, especially like your parents are like, what do you mean you want to go find yourself? You want to take a sabbatical and find yourself? <laughs> and everybody's like, this is an insane thing. And I said to them, I'm like, I can't explain it. I can't explain it. All I can tell you is I saved up. I'm going to figure this out. I just know that I'm done here. You wanted to explore your artistic side. You wanted to explore your creative talents. Did you have a set path of what that would mean? Not at all. I had literally, I had no clue. I, <laughs> I, I took my sabbatical and I had a hell of a lot of savings. And I just paused and it's almost like fate just came in i you know i don't i don't have another way of explaining it because as soon as i did that the most remarkable things happened things i would have never ever anticipated and the first thing was sundance when i was requested to audition for a role for astronauts and first time i left the country and it was completely out of the blue but the main issue that tando continued to run up against even as a modeling career took off and she was being invited to audition for movies, was that same old feeling she'd had since school. That sense of being something other, something abnormal. When I started out, they'd say model, actually they wouldn't even say model with albinism. A lot of the times it was just albino model, which I, the term albino I find derogatory. Um, but they would just say albino model, did ABCD, albino model, albino lawyer model it was just like it's it was such a dehumanizing process because you know it, it wouldn't matter the content of what i did it was the body that spoke much louder than anything else i could do um and i think another thing that was really quite interesting is people would say would describe models for instance and they'd say uh, i remember in the pirelli calendar i was reading this article and it said Models like Ducky Thought, Slick Woods, and Tando Hopper with albinism. Now, we're all black models, right? Um, and you'd start wondering, why do you have to qualify one when you don't qualify the others? So if you said Ducky Thought, dark-skinned model, 
slick woods, light-skinned model, and tandohopa model with albinism, then you're talking about skin tones and there's a variation. So that in that context, I'd understand it. But if you don't give that context, then it almost brings an othering. For Tando and many others, the way in which we talk about people with albinism can be deeply problematic. It's the same as the debate around how we refer to people with disabilities. The problem with these labels is that you become a diagnosis instead of a person. So you're not someone whose body happens to work in a different way. You're disabled. You're not someone who happens to lack pigmentation in your skin or your hair color or your eyes. You're an albina. Albinism is explained as a genetic disorder. And that kind of brings in the normal slash abnormal dynamic. And that's why there's a huge push these days to focus on what's called people-centered language. Language that describes what a person has rather than who a person is. And there's real data to back up this perspective. Studies have shown, for instance, that calling someone epileptic instead of a person with epilepsy leads to more stigma against them. And especially in Africa, the stigma against people with albinism is very real and very dangerous. In the last 10 years, more than 600 people with albinism have been attacked, mutilated or killed in 28 countries across our continent. Albinism is more common in most of Africa than anywhere else in the world, and superstitions about the condition are rife. In the worst affected countries like Malawi and Tanzania, people with albinism are regularly abducted and attacked for their body parts. Many are found murdered or they simply disappear. Even graves are desecrated and robbed. And all of this has instilled this pervasive culture of fear among people with albinism across the continent. South Africa is no exception. At times, people would say, for instance, that albinism, let's say you're special, and uh, that usually has quite um, superstitious and supernatural connotations. And people are trying to give you a compliment. But the problem is the severity of that consequence differs from place to place. So a friend of yours can say that you are special somewhere, I don't know, wherever, in Santon. And, you know, they, that might not necessarily cause harm cause or the harm. threat of harm. Cause the threat of harm. You say the same statement in certain places in KZN or Bumalanga or Tanzania or Burundi. That could have a very different consequence. So rather not even go there. Because as I said, you never want to be disassociated from your humanness, whether it's people thinking you're an animal or you're supernatural or whatever. I just think that language should not disassociate you from your humanness. So how do we make South Africa and Africa a safer place for people with albinism? How do we talk about the very real problems and threats people face without making a bad situation even worse. And at the same time, how do we avoid making people feel othered, less than human? 
with the words that we use. Because just ignoring the stigma, not talking about the issues, isn't going to make them go away. There's nothing wrong about speaking about albinism or a person with albinism, but context is everything, you know? Yeah. Like race or gender. There's nothing wrong about speaking about women issues or black people's issues, but context is everything. So the issue that I particularly had is that it was almost as though albinism was my surname. It was Tando model with albinism. It was like, (laughs) it followed me everywhere indiscriminately. And then that's when it becomes a problem. Because if we're talking about, let's say, issues around prejudice or muti killings, and I'm at the, you know, UN consultation session in terms of how do you um, create policies that allow um, discrimination against people with albinism to be prohibited. Of course, then we have to talk about albinism, right? Yeah. About, you know, I, I don't know, the Pirelli calendar. And we're talking about issues of representation and Alice in Wonderland, and we're talking about possibilities. It may not necessarily be the time for you to speak about that, you know? Um, so it, it, I think context is just everything. We just need to have contextual intelligence in terms of when we speak about something and when it's not appropriate to speak about it. This is where Tanda hopes you can make a real difference by taking a defiant stand against prejudice in all its forms. She's become an embodiment of self-love, almost as an act of political warfare, a way of taking back her own power. As new narratives take hold in the fashion industry and in society as a whole, narratives that center around authenticity, body positivity, and empowerment, Tando is helping to challenge accepted notions of normal. And it's a sense that goes back to something she felt intuitively back when she was four years old, before she was made to feel different. At home, my father planted these interesting things that we had a little garden and one of the roses were white and it was the first time I saw a white rose because my entire time I've just seen these red roses and when I saw the white rose I thought this is such a beautiful rose I never thought this rose something is wrong with it why is it white I need to paint it red in order for it to be normal I saw them as different but the same you know and I think the interesting thing is Nature is embedded with diversity. We are supposed to be different. It is, it is the expression of nature. But we tend to label or brand things normal or abnormal. That's cultural language. It's not, it's not being observant of nature. Culture will say, this is abnormal. That is normal. It's completely a figment of our imagination. This cultural language that we use, this obsession we have with labeling things, of dividing them up between normal and abnormal, we apply it to people as well. And it doesn't just apply in terms of race or gender. There's a far more subtle version of it too. Me being in this particular body, I I talk about multiple identities a lot. Um, and I realize that I have to kind of face face prejudice or oppression that 
deals with historical marginalization. So it's either gender, race, being African or having albinism, and it's in the littlest of things. And now I'm going in, I'm, I'm, I'm in this modeling career, and gender-wise, it already has loaded issues in terms of representation, women in representation, in terms of things, simple things like sexuality, um, in terms of race, it's a hell of a lot. But all of this gives you one common thread, and that's difference. And I kind of explained this somewhere. Um, I remember that we were having an H&M summit, and they were talking about the issue about coolest monkey in the jungle. Remember that H&M advert? The one picturing a young black boy wearing a top saying, coolest monkey in the jungle? It provoked international outrage, and it was startling that the brand hadn't seen it as outright racist. And... I remember when I saw black people go up in flames all around the world and South Africa, the resistance was incredible. And I could understand it because we never wanted, in our history as black people, we never wanted to be disassociated from our humanness. But then in the same breath, the word for albinism in Kosa is Nkau, which is a manki, right? And there's this dynamic, and I'm in a body that understands this dynamic, that it's, it's a contradiction. But the, what's the thread? What's the problem? It's how we deal with difference. That's the core. We have an, a behavioral defect with how we deal with difference. So this problem that we all have, this inability to deal with difference, that's what Tando wants to change. She wants to help people embrace their own cognitive diversity the fact that because we all experience the world in different bodies, we're all going to think differently about things. And that's okay. And the message she has for her younger self or other girls struggling to accept themselves the way they are? That anything is possible. It sounds so cliche, but anything really was possible because I looked at those little things. I looked at my eyebrows, my eyelashes, my hair, and how initially I used to fight for those things. And yet, the, those things that set me apart, that used to, I used to get resistance about, all of a sudden, I was, I was lucky to still be alive for the culture to understand me. Because sometimes, you are fighting your own battle and dancing to your own tune, and the culture just doesn't understand you. And I, I think I was lucky to be alive and still have the culture understand me while I'm still alive. This level of understanding, this acceptance of our own differences in our lifetimes, it's something we all hope and strive for. And it's something we all deserve. You've been listening to The Professional, a podcast from ProfMed about how successful South Africans are helping to redefine the world of work in the 21st century. Do us, innovators, and trailblazers. 
paint the future of what it will mean to be a professional. The Professional is a new podcast brought to you by ProfMed. We understand that the professional of tomorrow is ever-changing. 